The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Actually, there is a fisheries crisis. Uh, and in similar ways, there is a crisis of extraction. There is, of course, this crisis. There's the carbon crisis. There's the crisis of ocean acidification, of oceanic pollution. And all of these things, therefore, demand that we rethink the very fundamental imaginary of the ocean and begin to see it not as this static, divisible, concatenated series of extraction sites, but as this complex and interconnected ecosystem that we don't really know enough about. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 15th, 2023. Though the threat of climate change has come sharply into focus in recent decades, humans have long endeavored to shape and reshape the natural world, carving it up and making sense of it through technological and legal innovations alike. In just one example, reclamation projects have increased Singapore's total land area by 25%. The Chani Airport, one of the largest transportation hubs in Asia, sits on land that was once ocean. As Sarah B. Ranganathan discusses in her recent article for The Dial called The Law of the Sea, this poses a unique challenge for international law. Sarah B. writes, The shifting relation between land and sea reflects the scale of human impact on the environment. This unstable relation forces us to confront the consequences of climate change, as the fixed certainties, soil, resources, infrastructure, that have for so long governed our imagination of land begin to fall apart. I sat down with Sarah B., a professor of international law at the University of Cambridge, to discuss her article and what shipwrecks, fragile ports, sinking states, continental shelves, trash islands, seasteading, undersea cables, oceanic vents, and much more can tell us about how international law must adapt to better address our uncertain climate future. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 15th, the law of the sea in the age of climate change. Uh, the theme of the latest issue of the new magazine, The Dial, is shipwrecks. And in your essay for the issue, you appropriately open with the capture of a Portuguese vessel named the Santa Catarina uh, by the Dutch East India Company over 400 years ago. So I'm curious, you know, why you started your essay with this anecdote. Uh, what happened then? And what is its significance uh, to international law? Great. Well, thank you. Hi, Tyler. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And to dive straight into your question, so the reason I begin with the Santa Catarina, actually, there are two reasons. One is just where I was when I was writing these essays. So I wrote these essays when I was a visiting fellow in Singapore. And it so happened that I was, as I mean, I was told just just before I sat down to write these essays, that when I had sort of come to Singapore, in the moment that I had walked through Terminal 3 of Changi Airport of Singapore, I had probably walked over the very spot where 400 years ago, the Santa Catarina was captured by uh, Captain Jacob Van Heemskirk, a Dutch uh, seafaring captain. And that this was, and this was, was, you know, a great thing to find out because this capture and the events that followed from from it have had a huge place in the history of international law. So the capture of the Santa Catarina, a Portuguese ship by a Dutch vessel, is what became the sort of context in which Hugo Grotius, who is by by some accounts, certainly by certain Western accounts, seen as the father of modern international law, he was retained by the Dutch East India Company to write a sort of defense of this capture in a way that would justify Dutch actions and sort of show that it was not illegal for him to have done what he did. 
And that became the basis for his meditations on the idea of the freedom of the sea. He wrote this very famous essay called The Free Sea, which was part of a larger work, which was the law of prize. Uh, and this, although it sort of was, you know, it, it's it, it's a document that, you know, although it's 400 years old, provided a sort of understanding of the ocean and how human beings relate to it and what possibilities there are for extending law over it. That remained current for several hundred years up to the middle of the 20th century, when arguably the law of the sea began to change and a very different idea of human occupation of the sea and the ability to extend legal jurisdiction over the sea was codified into what is now seen as the modern or post-war law of the sea. And before we get any further with Grotius and maritime freedom, I think for any listeners who are confused, maybe that you were at an airport at the site of a former uh, ship capture. Uh, how is that possible? I think uh, if you could explain a bit about um, maybe the terraforming that Singapore underwent. Yeah. So an interesting fact about Singapore is that in the last, say, 100, maybe 200 years or so, I mean, certainly the last 100 years, Singapore has massively changed the the size of its land territory. About 25% of what we think of as the state of Singapore today is actually reclaimed land. It's land that was reclaimed from the ocean. So, and the airport is built on one of these portions of reclaimed land. 400 years ago, this would have been part of the Singapore Straits, a place where ships would sail over. Uh, Over time, they sort of put sand in, uh, you know, sort of pushed out the water and turned it into territory. So for my for my purposes, that also makes it very interesting because one of the things that these essays are doing is that they're tracking how relationships between land and sea have been constituted and reconstituted by human agency, by natural processes, and by international law. And this site really stands for all three. I mean, here you have human agency doing the work of reclaiming the land from the sea, but there are also these these issues around legal jurisdiction that turn it from one kind of property into another kind of property. Singapore goes from being a colonial territory to a sovereign state. And of course, now you have with rising sea levels, Uh, and rising extreme weather events, these questions about what happens to all of these quite fragile reclamations, uh, like Singapore, like all sorts of other ports, which might find themselves crumbling back into the sea. Yeah, and this this land-sea distinction, or or perhaps uh, this... uh, illusion of a distinction, I think, is is threaded throughout the essays. Could you explain a bit about this distinction and how international legal frameworks dictate land versus sea, uh, maybe starting with Grotius, the Grotian imaginary of the free sea, uh, and then how it has been, I guess, recapitulated today. You know, how has it changed? Uh, I got the sense that it's it's a much narrower idea of maritime freedom than perhaps Hugo, Hugo Grotius may have first conceived. Yeah, so this has been always a really interesting question, right? How do you decide the relationships between land and sea? Now, Grotius began simply, at least in his initial work, he articulated this idea that you have to look at the natural properties of the ocean. The sea is just different from land. It's different from land in that you cannot draw lines over the sea, but you can mark lines over land. You cannot stand on any part of the sea, but of course you can stand on land. You cannot therefore divide, you cannot occupy or divide the sea as you can occupy or divide land. So he said these are natural differences and they explain why Although initially these were both, uh, ed, you know, these were given in common to all human beings, it was possible to divide and subdivide land, but the same was not possible for the sea. So he said it's really the properties of the one that dictate how we might engage with it. And, and he carried that argument to uh, to its fullest extent. So he said it's not just the sea, but also we have to think of beachfronts as things that must remain perennially common. And that is simply because those beachfronts are made and remade by the crashing of the waves and by the changing of tides. And so it's not really possible to see the beach as something that can be sort of, you know, staked or claimed uh, in any kind of uh, settled or stable way. Over time, then he went on to change his ideas a little bit. And he recognized that it is actually possible to control some parts of the sea, parts very close to the shore where you might be able to, you know, use essentially the force of arms from the shore to control actions in the sea and prevent others from accessing certain parts of the sea. So he came around to this view that many of his contemporaries had taken, such as John Selden, such as William Wellwood, that it is possible to enclose very narrow bands of coastal seas. 
and this is part of this principle that we take as a principle of international law where we say the land controls the sea so if you have control of the land you can have control of some surrounding sea uh, around it in modern international law that principle has been carried to a further extent so we've detached it from this very sort of physical or mechanical idea that you can actually control the sea because you have the force of arms that can you know that can project outwards from land and turn it into a mathematical idea the idea being now that if you have an island or if you have land you can control the ocean around it up to a certain mathematical point and what that mathematical point will be is given to us through the law of the sea so and 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 fixing that was the subject of a very very long drawn out debate but in the end the resolution has been that all states can claim 12 miles of the surrounding seas as their own territory and then a further 188 miles as their exclusive economic zone now after that very long debate as you mentioned there was a uh, consensus or agreement um in the forms of treaties and international law that are now becoming extremely complicated by problems posed by climate change and rising sea levels uh and you you bring together many elements uh that sort of illustrate that uh, throughout your essays but first i want to take the piece of uh fragile ports that you mentioned so uh i'm curious why you brought in this idea of fragile ports uh, and if you could speak about uh, Henry Pittington um and the port of Matla i think that was a really interesting historical context to this where you know i think many people think that these are these are new debates um brought on by the past couple decades of accelerated climate change but i think the the case of Henry Pittington in particular shows that <laughs> these land sea distinctions and consensuses have been complicated almost from the start Yes, before we move on to Pittington, may I finish answering your previous question because I just realized there was a large part of it that I skipped over. Yes, please go for it. And that is that you asked me what has changed in terms of so there was this governing ideal of the freedom of the sea and now we have a fairly delimited legalistic understanding. And the difference there is really that for people like Grotius, the freedom of the sea had been a natural principle. It was this protean principle. Everything else emerged from that principle. You took that as the given and then you thought about well what are the incisions that human beings can make into this freedom. Now in the new law of the sea, the freedom of the sea is what remains after all the allocations of jurisdiction over the ocean have been made so as i said that now we don't follow natural principles we follow mathematical principles we only bring back natural considerations where these already serve sort of you know given interests of states but we don't devise our understandings of the sea on the basis of of essentially national uh, natural principles anymore so we have this idea of delimiting large parts of the ocean turning it into either areas that are within the sovereignty of a state or within the exclusive economic jurisdiction of the state and then also in what remains as the high seas and in the deep seabed we actually do have principles that specify how human beings can engage with those areas so the deep seabed for example is not a place of freedom anymore it's the common heritage of mankind which is a a different kind of it 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 turns puts it into a very different kind of jurisdictional regime and quite large parts of the high seas are also under the governance of different international regimes including various fisheries management regimes and so this idea that you can just do things in the sea by virtue of this natural freedom that has now been sort of taken over by the understanding that you can do things in the sea to the extent that this is permitted or at least not prohibited by specific legal regimes so so that's uh why i say that you know that the the freedom of the sea is now a legal principle it's not a protean freedom but with that should i move on to the next part of your to the more recent question yes thank you that that was helpful um in moving on and and yeah you if you could uh go ahead and talk about henry pittington and fragile ports mm-hmm. so yes pittington so the the story of henry pittington is told very well by the novelist amitabh ghosh who tells it both in his novel the hungry tide and then more recently in these lectures he did at the university of chicago these were published as the great derangement and they look into this question of you know how how literature has dealt with the problem of climate change uh, and ghosh tells this story i think almost in the aftermath of the the big the, the, the massive tsunami of 2004 that hit large parts of southeast asia and south asia uh, and japan and and sort of caused huge amounts of devastation 
one of the things he looks at is, and, and he's written other essays about this, but one of the curious things that got him thinking was this fact that when it came to certain islands in South Asia, in the Indian Ocean, Andaman Islands, they discovered that although the tsunamis had wrecked enormous destruction, they had practically destroyed, you know, their homes and towns and, and you know, all sorts of buildings on these islands, tribes, some of the Andamanese tribes had remained relatively unscathed. And there was this question of how had they managed, what what sort of, what basis of, how did they have this awareness of running away or getting away from the waves before they hit that modern civilization or those who sort of represented modern civilization on these islands in that moment did not. And Ghosh explores this, he tells this, this on the one hand tragic and the other hand sort of curious engagement with the tsunami as an act of forgetting and he suggests that one of the things that was in operation in places like the andamans was an act of almost active forgetting that over the over time human beings had come to the conclusion that they were very much able to sort of cast their dominance over nature in a way that required them not to respect natural forces as much anymore so you had this Thing, you had this sort of phenomenon of people building houses closer and closer to the shore to get better and better views of the sea, which it turns out was a dangerous thing to do and had been well known in traditional wisdom as a dangerous thing to do because, of course, the tsunami, terrible as it was, was not the first one to, to break on these shores. Uh, in Japan, he said, in Tokyo, there are to be found in beaches these tablets that say things like do not build your homes and these are ancient tablets that say do not build your homes below this point again a sort of reminder that there is an ancient there's a traditional wisdom around how human beings should be cautious about their engagements with the sea that seems to have been forgotten or presumably overcome or the sense of it as something that is not important has been sort of established so firmly in modern civilization that we forget that there are natural events that can sort of upset all these calculations about how humans could relate with the sea. So the story of Piddington is this, he tells that he's, Piddington was an official in colonial Calcutta, a man who was seen as slightly eccentric, but was actually quite important. So the word cyclone, which we use, you know, ubiquitously today is a word that Piddington had coined. He was a sort of amateur meteorologist and he was someone who had clearly invested in, in thinking about the environment in, in the time and place where he was. So one of the things he had discovered was that Bengal is a place which, you know, is, is prone to, I mean, the Bay of Bengal is prone to certain kinds of weather events. There is a reason why, for instance, the older ports in Bengal Calcutta, for instance, is built inshore. It's it's built up the mouth of a river. It's not built out in front to the sea. And there's a reason why mangroves, for example, have been worshipped and, and sort of uh, tended to very carefully because they protect the people who live upland and inland from the worst of the floods that can sort of find their way into the Bay of Bengal. And so Piddington knew all of this, and he was therefore very concerned about a British proposal to build a new port, which they thought would rival this old port of Calcutta, would be much bigger in scale. This, this massive thing that was called Port Canning went under construction. Piddington tried to stop it. He published a tract saying, look, this is a bad idea. We know that this is an area that's prone to massive flooding. This river that you want to build this port on is literally called it's called Matla, which means crazy. And that, that that's a traditional name that has sort of been born out of the fact that this river has these enormous floods from time to time. And, and so, you know, this is, this is you're doing basically something that is likely to be very dangerous. Uh, he was not listened to. They thought he was crazy. They thought they were building this, again, this, this structure that could surely withstand, you know, a, a little bit of rise in, in, in water levels or the occasional storm. And so they went ahead and built the port. Piddington, poor man, also died in the meanwhile. Five or six years after all of this, the port functioned fine, I guess, for the first two or three years. There was this massive storm. The water rose by a few meters, and that led to a wrecking of the entire town and then the eventual abandonment of the port. So Ghosh tells this as a story of events that could have been very easily avoided. The knowledge that what they were doing in terms of building out closer to the ocean front on a very fragile part of cusp of territory was actually a bad idea. This had been brought to the notice of the engineers and planners who were building this port, but it was discounted again with this quite simple modernist understanding that 
human beings can control nature and that we know how to contend with the ocean and that was proven to be entirely wrong now this is gets interesting because if we look at the difference between older ports and newer ports, we find that older ports tend to hew to this more conventional wisdom. They tend to be built in ways that are more sheltered. Uh, they tend to keep in mind the possibility of storms, of the rise of sea levels and so on. London is an example, uh, Calcutta is an example, Rotterdam is an example, but newer ports tend to be built out tend to be ocean facing to be built much closer to the open ocean uh, this is good for shipping this is good commercially it shortens ship times but as Ghosh tells it this is also something that should concern us because again with the rise of sea levels these ports become quite fragile they become more vulnerable to minor changes in sea levels in a way that older ports would not have been yeah, and I think that illustrates well that this is not just uh, a story of forgetting, but also, as you mentioned in your essays of, of hubris and perhaps willful ignorance, you mentioned that Piddington is often categorized as, quote, one of the first Cassandras of climate science. And for listeners who aren't as familiar with the Greek myth of Cassandra, it's, uh, she was a, a Trojan priestess cursed to be disbelieved despite possessing the power to make accurate prophecies, and which you say much is true of, of Piddington as well. And so, you know, I think one of the the next elements I'd like to talk about is not just these fragile ports that are at risk of, of being swallowed up due to rising sea levels or facing the elements uh, more so than old ports, but entire oceanic nations that are at risk of, of becoming what are now referred to as sinking states. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about uh, the legal questions that arise from this specter of sinking states and what some of these states are doing to sort of maintain their independent uh, sovereign status. Okay, great. So, you know, if sea levels make ports fragile, they pose actually existential questions for some states, right? So sea levels are rising across the oceans in the world. There are states like Bangladesh that stand to lose a large part of their territory. And there are other states like the island states of the Pacific or of the Indian Ocean that are confronting the possibility of a total extinction or a total loss of their territory. So, of course, there are two kinds of questions that are at least two kinds of questions that arise. First is what happens to the people of these states. There is going to be a point even before the total loss of territory where these territories will become simply uninhabitable with the change in water levels, the, the, they, they're already running out of freshwater resources. It's not going to be possible to eke out a life on, on slowly sinking states in the long term. So there are immediate questions around the possibility that a lot of people who live in who are you know live in countries that are essentially small island states will become refugee populations, will become displaced populations. So one set of questions has to do with well, what are the solutions for them? And this is linked to another problem, and that is also that's another fundamental existential problem, which is that if there is a total loss of territory, and if there are suddenly people who no longer have, you know, the, 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 in international law, the definition of a state associates a population with a territory. If there is a population, but there is no territory, does that mean that these states also get extinguished as legal entities? So will these people not only be displaced, will they also become stateless people? And that represents a distinct change of status because that means their claims to government, their claims to resources shift dramatically. These are both questions that international law is confronting. There are some developments in terms of thinking about what to do. So one kind of thing that the International Law Commission is exploring at the moment is, is it at least possible to fix a definition of state boundaries through international law in a way that we're not really concerned about the actual existence or not of state territory? So I said a few minutes ago that the principle that we adopt in international law is that land controls the sea. If you have land, then you have entitlements to the sea around you up to a certain mathematical extent. What the International Law Commission is exploring, and it is really interesting, is that can we simply take the land as it exists today and fix its sort of boundaries through law in a way that even if the sea levels rise and uh, that land begins to recede underwater, it won't actually change the maritime entitlements of these states and will not therefore change in practical ways the sense of these states as still existing, as having distinct boundaries and as having claims to oceanic resources. So that's one kind of question. 
But of course, there is still a big existential question, and that is where will the people who live in these places live and how will they live and what possibilities will they have of carrying on their ways of life, their political organizations, uh, their communities in, in new settings. So again, there are creative efforts, uh, creative sort of uh, yeah, efforts at work to find solutions. One has been that some Pacific states have been exploring the possibility of resettling entirely, taking all their populations and resettling on other islands uh, that may be proximate geographically might present, allow for similar conditions of life. But this is something that again poses, I mean, it's, it's, it's a possibility, but it has, there are also lots of challenges. Are there such proximate islands that can be used? Are they going to be available to these people? And if so, in what terms? Will we find, for example, in one previous instance that had not to do with climate change, but a different issue, the state of Nauru had looked for the possibility of actually acquiring a new island to resettle its population on because of the environmental depredations that had already been committed on Nauru. And it discovered that although Australia was willing to lease it an island as a kind of property, it wasn't willing to transfer sovereignty. So there are these questions about finding some some arrangement that allows the political community of, of these states to, to reproduce itself. Uh, and that is a much more complicated question. It is one that, again, is something that the International Law Commission might possibly try to say something about, but is not strictly within its sort of terms of reference. So that's the kind of question that really gives rise to a need for a stronger political decision on behalf of, um, amongst all states. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. You mentioned a few potential proposals or solutions that some of these so-called sinking states are pursuing, uh, one of which being the purchase of property and and in the hope of you know confer- conferring ownership of these new islands to the nation who purchases it. But you also mentioned this idea of, quote, freezing uh, territorial baselines. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, in your essays that you what's implied here is the adoption of a collective legal fiction. Uh, I'm curious what, what you mean by that and how legal fictions are, are sort of threaded throughout your, your essay. Yeah. So just to be clear, it's this, the, the property, so you, you very rightly put this, this is a question of purchasing property, but one of the concerns of these states is not just property, but also sovereignty. And those are, you know, those can work, sometimes they work together in that, uh, you know, the same thing that you have the right to property over also becomes the basis for the assertion of your sovereignty. What these island states are finding, though, at least the one or two that have tried, is that while they might be able to get on a property basis access to areas for resettlement, getting sovereignty is is a much more complicated issue. So just to back that thought, uh, you asked me about legal fictions. So here the legal fiction I was particularly referring to is one that would essentially assume by, by fixing baselines according to where they stand today. So the idea of baselines is that you basically draw these these points around the given territory of a state. And from it is from do, these points that you count outwards to say what are the maritime entitlements going to be. So baselines is basically a, a sort of the starting point from which you measure the 12 miles or the uh, 200 miles of exclusive economic zone or what have you. By fixing them at present levels and in their present positions, we are basically all agreeing to what is going to become a legal fiction uh, a few years from now as sea levels rise. We are going to basically say that regardless of where the actual baselines of state A or B is, the legal baselines are at this point. Now, this is not unprecedented. Actually, in the law of the sea, once we start looking at the details, we find that already we do use, to some extent, fictions like this. We use 
mathematical baseline. We use mathematical rules for drawing baselines that can sometimes depart from the natural features of the land. As I said a while before, there is this sort of, you know, international law, the, the idea of the law of the sea is to be based on the natural properties of the ocean. It, that has been replaced by, uh, you know, an idea that is, that is mathematical and legal. So it's not unprecedented that we could, that, that we would be able to fix baselines in this way. But it will be interesting because the practice has been, at least the, the presumption has been that even if we use a mathematical rule to, to mark out entitlements of 12 miles or 200 miles, our starting points are the existing given territory of a state, and we'll be agreeing to replace that. So that's interesting. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. We use legal fictions in all sorts of other contexts. In The law of the sea is replete also with legal fictions where we have rules for saying what is land or what is sea for the purposes of measuring things like the boundaries of archipelagic states. We have other kinds of fictions, fictions that assume that there is a distinct separability of land from sea when it comes to creating different legal regimes for the deep seabed and the high seas above it. So it's completely reasonable to to put in place a legal fiction, but it is always interesting to work out when and how that the idea of that fiction becomes commonsensical and becomes acceptable to all involved in, in establishing and then sort of reproducing it. Yeah, I think that's almost a perfect segue to the next element I wanted to talk about, which is continental shelves. You mentioned a bit about the legal fictions that dictate I guess essentially where where land and sea begin and end. You also mentioned that there are these mathematical calculations that were uh, at one point perhaps calculated by uh, the depth of the sea, uh, at other times calculated by distance from the land into the sea. But I'm also very interested in some of the motivations behind these legal fictions that you mentioned in your essay, uh, especially some of the extractive motivations. So uh, could you speak about a bit about how some of these legal fictions may have changed based on, uh, for example, uh, new drilling technologies that allowed states to extract oil and gas uh, farther uh, offshore, and therefore, you know, there was there was a, a clear motivation to extend your sovereignty or your your land uh, to encompass those off offshore oil fields. Sure. So actually, the continental shelf becomes interesting because of oil, right? Oil and gas. Uh, the the discovery of oil and gas as, as offshore is what excites uh, states. This is now I'm talking about the, the early 40s, about the possibilities of carrying out these operations in sort of carrying out submarine operations, which of course brings up this question of well, what is the legal basis for this? Who owns these these? Uh, you know, these offshore bids, uh, even if states were to invest it's, and corporations were to invest money in building equipment for drilling offshore, what kinds of legal protections can they expect from states? So in what is a major action in 1945, we get the Truman Proclamation uh, from the United States. The Truman Proclamation essentially is a claim that a certain part of what is the continental shelf of the United States, what is the, the, the territory that is just offshore in the United States, uh, is, is now sort of seen as, as part of the United States, is under the jurisdiction of uh, the US. And the Truman Proclamation is very interesting because it provides a series of justifications for why this is a reasonable thing to claim. It doesn't provide a specific limit, although the understanding is that the US is claiming something like it's claiming the continental shelf up to a hundred fathoms deep in the water. So it's basically claiming the continental shelf up to the point that the existing drilling technology of the US is able to exploit uh, offshore oil and gas. Now, this is seen as very exciting. A lot of other states, there are some who feel who are a bit worried about the extent to which this this represents a sort of you know U.S. incursion into the sea because there's it's also just a geological fact that the eastern seaboard of the United States has a very broad, very shallow continental shelf for miles. So even if you say we're only claiming a hundred fathoms, that still means you get quite a large stretch of land in horizontal terms. So there is some concern about that, but mostly everybody sees this as an opportunity to make their own claims. And so suddenly 
uh, in the days and weeks and months following the Truman Proclamation, we start getting a series of proclamations from other states as well, some of which are then more extensive. They start claiming further out. So there are states who say, well, why only 100 fathoms? We're actually claiming 200 miles uh, offshore uh, as our territory. Uh, and then yet others who say, why only the continental shelf? We are claiming 200 miles per se, not just of the sea floor, but also of the water column above it as a territory, because again, there is a sort of land controls the sea. There's a, a maxim that if you own uh, a piece of territory, you own everything below it and everything above it. So they say on that basis, we should be able to claim the water column as well. So this gives rise to a, suddenly a lot of concern. Everybody wants claims offshore, but there are differences of opinion about how far they should extend. In the US, there's also concern within sort of in the, in the US and the sort of defense establishment that if states start making these very extensive claims to offshore territory, that will just put large parts of the sea out of the reach of US naval vessels and submarines, and that that will, be a diff that will not be a good thing in view of the sort of incipient you know, Cold War. And so gradually we see the emergence of a lawmaking process, which is entirely around trying to figure out how to delimit the continental shelf. It turns out that this proves harder than thought. Everybody has strong views. There are strong interests. There are also different possibilities. So you mentioned this sort of debate between depth and distance, and that becomes a governing debate. So there are states who say, look, we should only claim up to 100 fathoms or 200 meters deep or 300 meters deep, but no more than that. They are, in response to them, uh, there are states who say, well, that works very well if you have a long and shallow continental shelf as the US does or as Britain does in some part, but it doesn't work for states with plunging continental shelves because that would just mean that they would get a very narrow strip. So this goes on for a while. We get initially a definition that is a complete fudge. So in the 1958 Geneva Convention on the Law of the Sea, we don't get a specific rule, we get two rules. So we get a rule that says, usually you should claim up to about 200 meters from the shore, but it, this can be extended if, the, if it turns out that it's possible to exploit uh, deeper parts of the ocean. So as long as the exploitability criterion is met, you can extend your continental claims much further offshore. This gives rise to fresh concerns because some jurists begin to ask, well, what does this mean? Tomorrow, if technology develops, can states start claiming their way up to the midpoint of the ocean or even beyond? Will that mean that all of the seabed will get carved up into uh, state territory? Uh, the CIA gets worried about this and produces a scare map to show what would that mean for uh, US defense. And so then there is again lawmaking process. And what we get through the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea is a different rule. And this sort of gets rid of all these depth questions and says, look, OK, in the interest of equity, every state will be able to claim 200 miles offshore, regardless of whether geologically there is a continental shelf or not, regardless of how far the geological shelf exists. It may exist all the way up to the 200 miles. It may stop well short. Doesn't matter. 200 miles offshore that land regardless of the form it takes will be considered the continental shelf of a state and to keep some states like again the us which have these long and shallow shelves uh, continental shelves happy the convention also makes a further provision of being able to claim an extended continental shelf an outer continental shelf for another 150 miles if here they can show geologically they have it so this is an example of a mathematical rule, which is supplemented by a geological or a natural rule where this already accords with the interests of, this, of states. And entirely, this is about oil and gas, which are found offshore and on continental shelves. Now, it will likely not surprise our listeners to learn that this did not settle the debate entirely uh, in the 1982 uh Convention on the Law of the Sea. So I want to fast forward to 2007 to the episode that you briefly mention in your essay when uh, Russia planted its flag on the Arctic seafloor. Uh, you quote the Canadian foreign minister at the time who said on television, quote, this isn't the 15th century. You can't go around the world and just plant flags and say, we're claiming this territory. But as you mentioned, perhaps you can, or this may be a misunderstanding of, of UNCLOSE. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so that was an example of rhetoric, which actually is not does not have a foundation in the law of the sea. So as I said, there is uh, the UNCLOS itself, the 1982 convention that is, provides for the possibility of claiming an outer continental shelf, 
so long as you can show that you have it. Now, there is a process to show this. You can't simply say we have it. You have to prove it by providing geological evidence. And the, uh, the convention sets up a body, a sort of scientific body called the, the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, whose purpose is not to provide authoritative rulings saying, yes, you can claim it or no, you can't, but to provide recommendations. And so Russia had initially made this claim a little bit before it had received any definitive any answers from the, the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. But the point that I was making in the essay was that actually under the convention, they are perfectly entitled to provide geological evidence to show that they have an outer continental shelf that extends further than uh, people previously thought. In Russia's case, they are keen to do this vis-a-vis -vis the Arctic, because with the melting of the Arctic ice, larger sweats of the uh, Arctic continental shelf are coming within reach, and these have previously untapped oil and gas deposits that Russia is keen to exploit. So the problem, if there is one here, is in the law that allows for these extended claims. And the law allows for these extended claims because when the law was made, it was really trying to reconcile a series of interests that states had in extracting the resources of the ocean. And so it allowed for this possibility of, of claiming wide parts of the deep seabed as essentially within state jurisdiction. And so this is now just something we're seeing the sort of absurd end of it, where with melting ice, there are new opportunities for states to claim larger and larger parts of the seabed, which they might want to turn to further oil and gas drilling, which then has its own, obviously, as you, as you can imagine, then there's the feedback loop that does not help matters at all with climate crisis. But this is a pathology of the law. Now, from one misunderstanding of the law of the sea to another I want to make sure we talk about seasteading. Mm -hmm. You talk about uh, the Seasteading Institute founded by Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, as well as, well as uh, Milton Friedman's grandson, Patrick Friedman, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, both uh, noted libertarians. This really struck me as, as yet again, sort of another um, misappropriation or misunderstanding of the law of the sea. So what did this episode, uh, this, this attempt to seastead reveal about the law of the sea, or, or perhaps shed light on? Yeah, so this is an ongoing thing. The Seasteading Institute, I think Peter Thiel, I think, is no longer invested in this, but Patrick Friedman certainly continues to be the sort of leading figure associated with this, along with a bunch of other Silicon Valley uh, you know, billionaires and entrepreneurs. And the idea is, so they claim that what they're trying to do, and this is, again, quite interesting, right? Because they say that, look, with climate change, one of the things that's going to happen is exactly rising sea levels. The world is running out of land. So how are we going to respond to this problem? We're just going to make new land. We're going to build new artificial islands in the coastal seas and high seas. And we expect that in the future, these can become their own countries. Humanity will choose to live in the ocean uh, in the way that it currently does on land. So this is the sort of futuristic, techno-optimistic vision of how even, even climate crisis or even rising sea levels are simply an opportunity to make profit and, and to, to advance technology. For me, I looked at, so I looked into some of these projects. These projects are very glossy on websites. They're very glossy on paper, but they, of course, avoid all the hard questions, right? You can't just build an island by imagining its existence. It, it's... Uh, it's heavy engineering work. It demands heavy resources, heavy resources in terms of metals and technology and energy. And there are all sorts of unanswered questions about the, the viability, the material viability of seasteading as a project. So uh, it's also the case that as far as the vision of seasteading goes, it's not per se a new vision. In the 1960s and 70s, another period of, of high techno-optimism, we had seen the articulation of similar plans, of similar blueprints for building floating cities in the sea, including Buckminster Fuller's designs for Tokyo Bay, Shuji Sadao's designs. There were, there were lots of people who came up with these ideas. And of course, we've seen also over the years, there has been some, you know, rec through reclamation uh, and through the sort of reinforcement of rocks, the development of what are seen as artificial islands where people do live. So there are all these precedents that seasteading is relying on to suggest that this can become a real possibility. However, what they really what they really seek to advance through this is something that is a little bit of a legal fudge. So they assume 
that just by building on the sea, just by getting out onto the high seas, you somehow leave all the laws of human civilization, of you know, all the all sort of human laws, all all sorts of laws of states, all sorts of pre-existing forms of government, these things behind, and you can start completely afresh as far as political experiments in 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 building human collectivities go. Now, this is not true. The law of the sea, and again, this we come back to this idea that the freedom of the sea is not something protean. The freedom of the sea is a legal institution. Uh, jurisdictions don't run only with territory. States exercise jurisdiction over their people, even extraterritorially. And just by creating a sort of artificial island or taking your ship out into the high seas, you don't escape the remit of territorial laws, including, unfortunately, tax laws and things like that. Yeah, so for me, the question is what kind of reimagination this is. And it seems to me that it's not, in terms of technological imagination, this is not something that is drastically novel. The novelty, if any, relies in, resides in the fact that they've simply taken what all of us see as a crisis. This is a crisis of the over-extraction of the Earth's resources, crises of distribution, uh, crises of how we're going to live uh, how, and how many of us already live in the present and turned all of that into some sort of glossy idea of escape. This is very much of a piece with the idea that you can simply build panic rooms or you can build little estates and those help you hive off the, you know, the, those allow you to escape from the world and all of its problems and that whatever else is real elsewhere, climate change that is real elsewhere, or environmental disaster that is uh, real elsewhere need not happen to you. So it's an escapist fantasy in part, but also I think it's a calculation. And the calculation here is that they are presenting the possibility of radical escape as a bid for resources from their own home government. So this is a, this is a bid for public resources, for public subsidies uh, in the now. And it's a sort of suggestion that actually we don't have to worry about capitalism because there is no such thing as the end of capitalism. There are just new forms of capitalism. There are new uh, that that every crisis presents the opportunity for a further leap forward, and that's seasteading or going to Mars or you know similar such uh, techno optimistic projects will be the leap forward if we are willing to invest in that. Perhaps yet another story of hubris and forgetting one of many i think throughout your essay i also must say i really like the phrase legal fudge i may i may adopt that uh in place of legal fiction as it's more a bit more colorful yeah and also it suggests something sugary and sweet right Which is <laughs> exactly not particularly that yeah and too much of it can be bad for you exactly. i guess you you walked us through many elements in your essays from a shipwreck or a ship capture rather the beginning to fragile ports sinking states continental shelves, and even a few things we didn't get into, uh, including trash islands and undersea cables. So I'm curious, you know, what you were trying to do with this essay in bringing together those elements and connecting them like this. You know, what are you ultimately trying to say about international law in this age of climate change? So what I did in these essays, I wanted to track a series of sites where the interface between land and sea is a dynamic one. And is a dynamic one both for reasons of human activity and for reasons of of nature or climatic activity so reclamation versus sort of you know rising sea levels which is a different form of which is reclamation in the reverse that is going on and i wanted to show that the law of the sea as it currently stands actually does not look at these interfaces as particularly dynamic it doesn't really it's the law of the sea is built so professor karen scott in new zealand has written a lovely paper where she argues that the law of the sea is really built on holocenic assumptions, right? These are assumptions about environmental stability, and these are assumptions about the possibility of continuous growth, economic growth, and that these assumptions are also, and this I've argued in my work as well, essentially give rise to a law of the sea that sort of creates and cements an extractive imaginary of the ocean. In this imaginary, it's possible to see the ocean as divisible. It's possible to disentangle the complex and interconnected ecosystems of the ocean into discrete sites of economic activity, which is why we get divisions of the ocean by zone, by medium, by function. We get, in a way, a neatly filleted ocean with all the complicated bits just taken out. And so we can think of the ocean not as this 
place that we need to learn more about, that we need to engage with, both with wonder and with sort of scientific curiosity. And instead, we have this ocean where we think, well, this is the bit we can go and you know get oil from. This is the bit we can mine for minerals. This is the bit we navigate. That's the bit for fisheries, as if those all those processes are not connected or as if they don't have feedback loops. And this is the this this imagination of this static ocean that is divisible, uh, that is simplifiable, is what is being challenged by climate uh, climate change. So now we see that it's not possible to think of the land and sea divisions as things that can be controlled simply by law, but that with rising sea levels we'll have to redraw those lines. We cannot think of fisheries as as simply a thing that can be you know can be just sort of managed efficiently through the calculation of maximum sustainable yields. Actually, there is a fisheries crisis, uh, and in similar ways, there is a crisis of extraction. There is, of course, this crisis. There's the carbon crisis. There's the crisis of ocean acidification, of oceanic pollution, and all of these things therefore demand that we rethink the very fundamental imaginary of the ocean and begin to see it not as this static, divisible, concatenated series of extraction sites, but as this complex and interconnected ecosystem that we don't really know enough about, although we've been using it for centuries. The essay, or series of essay rather, essays rather, is called The Law of the Sea, and it's in issue four of The Dial. Surabis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me, Tyler. It was a pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.